with me to Luke chapter 23 as we continue our series of sermons on the cross of Christ. And today we look at the cross and forgiveness. If you found your place, would you stand with me and let's honor God by the reading of his word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers who mocked him, coming up and mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying if you are the king of the Jews save yourself there was also an inscription over him this is the king of the Jews father we pray this morning that your words would penetrate our heart that the lessons you want us to learn today would be obvious to us and that you would speak them into our hearts and to our minds father we thank you again for your word and, and for what it means to us we ask all these things in Jesus name Amen. How many people could have witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? We know from historical accounts and different uh, people who have written that there were thousands and thousands of people there. But I believe in our minds we never envisioned a crowd as large as what was really there. We see in the movies, the, the accounts of the, of the day, Around the crucifixion, we see uh, the pattern that they set there. There's a crowd. But I don't believe that in our minds we can wrap our heads around how big of a crowd there actually was there on the day that Jesus was crucified. It was the week of the Passover. Every Jewish family in Palestine had a desire in their lifetime to be able to go to Jerusalem, to be able to go there, and to be able to participate in the Passover feast, there in the temple at Jerusalem. So all in Jerusalem, in the walled cities of Jerusalem, there were tens of thousands of people who were there staying inside the city of Jerusalem. Outside of the city, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, everywhere that you could put a tent or build a booth, there were people there. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people who were around Jerusalem at this time. Most estimates give us between maybe 500,000 and a million people could have, been, could have been possible for them to have been in and around Jerusalem during this time. And it is a time this week, especially this particular Passover, is a time of great passion. The people are there in Jerusalem, and they are these Jewish people are praying for their Messiah to show himself during the Passover. They want him to come and to declare his earthly kingdom there during that time. As Jesus made his way down the Mount of Olives on the, on, uh, coming down on the triumphal entry, as he came down from the Mount of Olives as he was headed to Jerusalem, it looked very much like he might be that very Messiah that they had been looking for. He, he looked like that person who would, and he got the attention of all of the religious and the Roman authorities. 
it looked like he was leading a sort of spiritual revolution, and everybody became very concerned. If Jesus had called for arms at any point in the next week, he would have found thousands of soldiers who would have wanted to be by his side. His followers knew this, and they were in a fever pitch there. His enemies also knew this, and it heightened their concern. And it was determined during this week that this high-profile teacher, this high-profile rabbi, was going to have to be executed. The people who days earlier had been there at the triumphal entry as he came down from the Mount of Olives, who were praising him and singing Hosanna to the highest, glory to God, and who were, who were singing, calling him the son of David. These same people, by the end of the week, are disappointed and angry that he wasn't going to free them and establish an earthly kingdom there in Jerusalem. So days later, these same people are crying in front of Pilate, crucify him. And they stand now at his cross with the very Roman soldiers that they hate, and they join the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders in mocking and cursing Jesus Christ. And then something amazing happens. Jesus begins a prayer. Jesus opens a prayer with the word Father. And everything begins to change around the scene. The fact that the first word that Jesus spoke from the cross was a prayer shouldn't really surprise us. Because we know from the Gospels and all the things that we have read before, we know that Jesus is a person of constant prayer. We see in Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus had been after a long day of preaching and teaching and healing. He had stood in the doorway at one of Simon Peter's relatives' house. He had stood in the doorway as they brought every person in the village and in the city who had some kind of disease or infirmity, and they brought them there, and Jesus laid hands on them and healed them until late in the night. And that next morning, instead of taking rest and instead of just Laying around, Jesus is the first one up, and he goes outside the city to what the Bible says is a desolate place, and he begins to pray to the Father. We see this pattern all throughout Scripture. In John chapter 17, we see the wonderful high priestly prayer of Jesus as he prays to the Father for all of those who in, in all of history will be given into his hand and committed unto his salvation. And Jesus prays for everyone who will ever believe in him and follow him. Just a short time before the crucifixion, we hear the agonizing prayer of Jesus Christ from the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus accepts the cup of wrath that is going to be poured out on him at the cross of Calvary. So it's no surprise to us that now as he is there on the cross, at the most brutal final hours of his life, we should expect that Jesus will pray. Now, even those among us, even those among us who refuse to pray when life is going real smooth, we suddenly find prayer the most necessary thing when the storms of life come in. Prayer all of a sudden seems to be a first instinct for us when things go bad. We talked Wednesday evening about Mark chapter 4 as the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and they were going across the sea. 
and a great storm came up, and Jesus is asleep, and, and they go to Jesus, and they begin to awake him, and they say, hey, listen, don't you care? We're about to die. Save us. And Jesus gets up and says, well, <laughs> wow, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Oh, ye of little faith. And he calms the storm. We're, we're like that. A lot of times in our lives, when we get to the place to where we're in a storm, and we go and we almost, without fail, we immediately pray for ourselves, and in our need we cry, Lord, help me. And there's nothing wrong with this prayer. There's nothing wrong with that prayer because we're instructed by the writer of Hebrews to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. But now what should get our attention is that the prayer that Jesus offers here is not for himself. The prayer that Jesus prays here is not about him. Jesus could have immediately prayed for his deliverance and legions of angels would have came and taken him from the cross, and he would not have had to bore the, sin, the sins of humanity. But he didn't do that. Jesus wasn't praying for his loved ones as he left this life. He wasn't praying for Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and all the people who were there in his inner circle. He didn't pray for his disciples here at this moment. He didn't pray for anyone other, other, all these people, what is amazing here is that he prayed for his enemies. Here on the cross of Calvary, Jesus gives the greatest example of all time of what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus said these words. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't you think that got some attention when he said those words? Those were hard words for people to swallow. All their lives they had been taught, love your neighbor as yourself. And now Jesus expounds on it further, and he says, don't just love your neighbor. It's more important that you love your enemies. Do you have an enemy? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to look at anybody. Do you have an enemy? I, I can remember very vividly when I was a boy, my grandfather was probably as humble a man as I've ever known. I saw him at two positions in life as long as all my life. He was either working with his hands or he had a Bible in his hands reading that Bible. Those are the only two positions I ever saw him in maybe watching the Braves every now and then. But I remember my grandfather saying something to me one time about enemies. And I said, I said, Papa Mark, surely you don't have any enemies. How could anybody be mad at you? And he looked at me as I was just a boy, and he said, if Jesus had enemies, we'll all have enemies. If Jesus Christ could have enemies, then we're all capable of having en enemies. Now, Jesus had also preached unlimited forgiveness. When he said to forgive, Jesus said, don't forgive one time or two times. He said, forgive until 70 times 7. Now, these words are easy to speak. They're easy for us to sit here this morning and look at and say, well, I'm going to pray for my enemies. 
I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to give unlimited forgiveness to my enemies until somebody hurts us, until somebody says something about us, somebody talks about us, or somebody hurts our family, or somebody does something, uh, they lie to us, or they cheat us, or they steal from us. Then it's where it matters. See, Jesus spoke these words on a sunny afternoon, standing up preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and those were easy words for anybody to, to say, but now Jesus is in the most grim and dark hour that any person who ever came to this earth will be in. Jesus is watching a group of men come to him to murder him unjustly, and Jesus practices what he preaches as he begins to cry out to the Father. And his prayer is a prayer of forgiveness. He says that beautiful word, forgive. Let me ask you this. Has anyone ever forgiven you? Has anyone ever looked you in the eye and said, I forgive you? I've had it happen to me several times. I've had it happen to me since I was a kid. I've had it happen to me as I was a teenager. I've had it happen to me as an adult. I've had it happen to me as a pastor where I've had to go to someone and look them in the eye and ask for their forgiveness. And one of the most wonderful feelings in all of the world was when that person looked back at me and said, I forgive you. It is a wonderful freeing position for both people. Forgiveness from others is wonderful to receive. It's a really good feeling. But as we read here and as we look at Jesus' words, we understand that when we are forgiven by God, it is absolutely unlimited, the forgiveness. Now I want you to think about this. When Jesus asked the Father for forgiveness for these men who were murdering him, he's not just saying to the Father, forgive them for this act that they're doing. What Jesus is saying is, Father, I want these men to have the best life possible. I want these men to have the greatest life that they can ever imagine. I want these men who are murdering me to know the complete and full forgiveness that you have available. Because forgiveness meant more to Jesus than just being released from this penalty that they were, were guilty of. When God pardons us, he does something that is far better than just refusing to punish us for an act and give us what we deserve, he forgets our debt of sin. He forgets all of the debt of sin that we owe, and we should never take this lightly. We should never look at this lightly. We should look at the account of the cross and what Jesus is suffering here, and it should make us mindful every day of the price that Jesus paid for us to know forgiveness. Forgive. Say that word with me. Forgive. Say it again. That is a wonderful word. That is a beautiful word when you think about what it means in our world. It means to me that a record can be made clean. That you can have a clean slate with God. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus is here on this cross is because as he went about in his ministry, as he went about his day-to-day -day in healing people, 
He not only told people that they could rise up and walk, but Jesus would say to people, your sins are forgiven you. And this made the religious leaders who were around Jesus, this made them furious that he would say that he had the power to forgive sin. And now as Jesus cries out on the cross and he says, Father, forgive, don't you know the conviction that these religious leaders feel as Jesus is dying there and he says, Father, forgive these very people who set me up to be murdered. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is the restoring of fellowship. When God forgives us, he takes us back into his fellowship and he lives with me and he lives with you as if we never, ever sinned. Think about that. When God forgives us, he lives in fellowship with us and he walks with us throughout our days as if we had never sinned to begin with. The psalmist said that his sins were as far as the east is from the west. All of my ugly past, all of my failures, all of the things that I did, all of the wrongs that I did, everything was forgiven and I was made to be in fellowship with God through forgiveness. And then Jesus continues, it's not just a prayer for forgiveness, but it is a prayer for forgiveness of those who had wronged them. There's a key word here. He says, forgive them. He's very specific here in who he is praying for. He's praying for everyone who is there who had a hand in, the, in his crucifixion and in his murder. These people had wronged him, and now he's praying for them to be forgiven. I read a story about a man named Thomas Borge. Thomas Borge was a leader in the struggle against the totalitarian regime that had dominated his country in Nicaragua. During the revolution, Borge was captured and put in prison. While he was in prison, he was subjected to the worst torture that anyone could be subjected to for over 500 hours. After the rev revolution, Borge was freed and became the minister of the interior of Nicaragua. One day, he found one of his torturers in jail. He walked up to this man who had inflicted such terrible, relentless, and brutal pain upon him, and he said these words, I am now going to get my revenge on you. He then held out his hand and said, This is my revenge. I forgive you. This is my revenge. I forgive you. So what are you praying? Jesus here is praying for his enemies. What are you praying for your enemies? What did Christ tell us to pray for our, our enemies? Jesus basically told us in, in, in Matthew, he said, Basically, what he said was we should pray for them to have a better life than what we're living. We should pray for them to have better and to be as prosperous and to be as healthy and, and whatever they need. If we have an enemy, we should be praying for them in that manner. Now, let me ask you this. 
to the world, what does that seem like? To the world, when we say as a Christian concept, when we say that we ought to pray for our enemies to prosper, and we ought to pray for our enemies to be better off than us, and we ought to pray for our enemies to have health and to have everything that they need, what does that sound like to the world? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds insane. But yet here Jesus is, is giving us an example as he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. Now again, no, you don't have to give a show of hands, but when you have forgiven an enemy and when you have begun to pray for that person who may have persecuted you or may have, may have done something wrong to you, when you begin to pray for that person and you begin to uh, pray in the way that Jesus prescribed for us to pray, I, I, how does it make you feel in your heart? At first, it's an odd feeling. At first, it's something that is unnatural for us. But then as we continue to do it, there is a freeing in our hearts. There is a freeing in our minds. There is a freeing and releasing in us. And we're free of the malice and we're free of anything that we may have had for someone who may have wronged us. God makes us free from that inside through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it causes us to be able to understand just a little bit more of what Jesus did here on the cross as he prayed these words and he said to the Father, forgive them. He prays for this forgiveness. Now, he's asking for their best possible outcome. If God forgives you, what do you have? If God forgives you, what do you have? When God forgave me, you know what? You know there. You know what I had? I had salvation. When God forgave me, I had salvation. I have salvation as a result of that forgiveness. As a result of Him forgiving me, I had the best possible outcome. I have fellowship with God, and I have salvation. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Get, get this in your mind. If Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them, he's not just saying, Father, forgive them for, for this. He's saying, Father, forgive them completely and give, give them, Father, let them see that they can have fellowship with you, that they can walk with you, and that they can have salvation through this very act that they're committing. That is, that is extremely difficult for us to understand and no one else but Christ could have probably uttered these words and have said this. But when he says these words, Father, forgive them, he is saying, I want you, God, to save these men's souls. Now, he says, he, he finishes up here, and he says these words, For they know not what they do. Now, Jesus is in no way excusing the sin that they're committing. Jesus is not saying these men did not know what they were doing was wrong. Normally, these men did the same thing over and over and over. It was a day's work to them. Their job is to be an executioner. But there was something different about this. This was the Passover feast. 
and 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 they wanted what happened here was there are so many people there in Jerusalem and the Roman authorities and the religious leaders want all these possible hundreds of thousands of people to see Jesus made an example of and to say don't go against us or this is what happens to you the two men who were who were crucified with him were also high profile people people knew their names they weren't just thieves they were insurrectionists they had been a part of a plot there and and uh, against the government and now they were there also to be made an example of these men knew as they were crucifying jesus they knew that there was something different here, and it wasn't just a day's work. Everybody involved knew. Although Pilate washed his, stood before the crowd and he washed his hands, he stained his very soul by being a part of the crucifixion of Christ. Judas took his 30 pieces of silver and he exchanged them for a hangman's rope. His conscience would not allow him to escape his betrayal of Christ. Everyone involved here is guilty. Yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Guess what? You and I are guilty. You and I were guilty at one point in our lives. You and I were just as guilty as these men who had hammers and spikes in their hand. You and I were just as guilty as the man who had a spear that he would thrust in the side of Jesus. You and I were just as guilty as the crowd who stood and mocked him. You and I were just as guilty as those who spat upon him and those who mocked him and those who laughed at him and those who beat a crown of thorns down on his head. You and I were just as guilty and in some ways, some of us were even more guilty because we, this, this doesn't, the words they don't know what they do didn't apply to some of us because we knew the scriptures. We knew we were wrong. We knew we were lying. We knew we were cheating. We knew that we were living in sin. The Holy Spirit had convicted us time and time again, and we knew what we were doing, and we knew that we stood in opposition and hatred to the very God who gave us life. But there was a moment, there was a moment in time where the Holy Spirit directed me and pointed me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I asked for forgiveness. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, looked to the Father and said, Father, forgive him, he's one of mine. And from that moment on, I have known what it was like to live in a relationship with Jesus and to not bear the sin and the guilt and the shame that I had carried for so long. What Jesus is really saying here is, Father, forgive them because they so desperately need to be forgiven. Father, forgive them because they need me so very desperately. Jesus prayed this prayer there that afternoon. It was the very first thing that he said as he was there on the cross hanging for our sins, 
shedding his blood and giving his life for our sins, these are the very first words that he spoke. And today these words echo in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls and as he continues every day to say, Father, forgive them. And this morning, God stands, Jesus stands ready to say to the Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, give them the forgiveness that they so need. This morning, you have an opportunity to completely know the great forgiveness and the burden-free existence of sin in a relationship with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, you have the greatest opportunity that you'll ever have in this life to know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, what would you say if you were there that day and Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them? Would you know, would you know that he was talking to you? This morning, he's speaking to souls in our congregation. And I'm asking you here, if you're a Christian, I'm asking you to give this the greatest reverence and prayer that you possibly can to pray for those that the Holy Spirit is speaking to right now. And I pray that you would pray for them, that they would have the courage and conviction to say, I want to know the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Darren is coming to lead us in this time of invitation, this time of worship. It's time to reflect on what we have heard. Would you this morning stand with me and pray as we enter this time. Father, I pray this morning and I ask you to speak to the hearts and minds of the people here in our congregation. Father, I pray that you would look upon us with mercy and grace and I pray that if there are people here who need to know and understand the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that today they would have the courage to say, I want to be forgiven. Father, I pray and I ask you, Lord, just to speak and move in our hearts today. Don't let us just be casual observers and go home and not heed what you're saying to us, but help us to dive deeply into our relationship and fellowship with you. Father, if there are any other decisions that need to be made here, decisions for baptism, decisions for membership, whatever anyone needs to do, now is the time. But Father, for those who need forgiveness, I pray that this morning they would simply cry out to you and say, Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner, and I need to know Jesus as my Savior. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.